everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. It's a podcast for feminists who feel exhausted and overwhelmed by everything they have to do and still worry that they are not doing enough. Our topic this week is one that we said we would do in our last episode, and then people on Instagram commented like, yes, please <laughs> do that, please. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're doing it. Even though it's not a topic, we included it in our book. Yeah. And we had to argue a little bit about why it deserved to be included in a book about stress. <laughs> yeah. But in Human Giver Syndrome, the mandate is to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. And pretty includes a pretty specific body type, uh, especially if you're white. There's really just like the one model you've got. It's more complex for people of other different cultural heritages and other races because white maybe supremacy. your script doesn't match the mainstream dominant script. And now you've got two and it's conflicting and you're always doing it wrong. But everybody is always doing beauty wrong. Yeah. So we're going to spend this episode talking about, well, Amelia, you take it. Um, we're going to talk about the thing that we call the bikini industrial complex. And um, one of the reasons we so rarely talk about this in public is that it takes a lot of convincing and overcoming what people already think they know in order to just give people even a chance of believing that this might be true. So I'm going to start by talking about grammar. Great. Okay. Grammar is a set of rules that we drill into children in school, right? So kids learn that rules are valuable and important. Yeah? About what are you talking, Amelia? Grammar. So, for example, there's um, singular See, see what they. I did there, though, with the about yeah. what are you talking? Nobody with says the, that. About what are you talking? Nobody talks that way. Right. Um, so let's use an example of singular they. Hey, Emily, do you remember sitting around the dinner table and dad would give us grammar lessons? Oh, God, yes. And, like, not let us speak at the table. Yeah, and not let us speak unless we spoke in a way that was, I guess, the way that he learned in Catholic school in the 1960s? <laughs> 50s, yep. 1950s, yeah. So, for example, if I would say, like, Katie, she blah, 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 I'd say Katie, because I wanted to make sure they know, Katie, do you know who I'm talking about, Katie? And then I'd say she and start, and he's, he wouldn't let me finish the sentence because I had used two subjects, Katie and she, and... That was incorrect, so I wasn't allowed to keep talking. Yeah, remember that? I don't remember that specifically, but... Okay, well, that happened, that was, a, that was an example that happened a couple of times to me. Anyway, we learned that grammar was really important, that these rules really matter, that really they are matter. truly valuable. Um, so when you, for example, went to write Come As You Are, and you wanted to use they as a singular pronoun... Yes, in 2014... I very much understood why your editor was like, no, you can't do that because that's a rule and rules matter. To be specific, my editor did not say that. My editor was on my not side. Not your editor. Right, your copy my editor. My copy editor. Three yeah. copy editors in a row. It was a battle. Yeah. Because we all learned that they is plural, and if we need a pronoun to refer to a person whose gender we don't know, or whose gender doesn't matter. Or whose gender isn't he or she. Yeah, whose gender isn't he or she. But even before people understood that not he or she was an option, I initially learned that the, the pronoun you use is he. Oh, yeah, when of course. When one blah, 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 he must blah, 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 because he is a universal standard for a person of any gender, apparently. Yeah. 
And then, like, eventually they changed the rule because I guess someone was like, words have meanings. And he refers to a man, not a person of any gender. So then we're supposed to say he or she. Uh-huh. And then people were like, yeah, that's still not inclusive of all people. And also, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It's awkward. It's cumbersome. But yeah, it's not inclusive of people whose gender isn't he or she. And right. I really specifically wanted to include people who didn't go by he or she. And this is, we're six years later now, and finally the gatekeepers of these arbitrary rules have decided that we're allowed to use they as a singular gender-inclusive pronoun. Yeah, the the rule changed in 2017, so when we were going through the copy editing process of burnout, which we had also written with singular they throughout, not a peep. Not a peep. Yeah. So hopefully, as the rules morph over a period of a few years here, um, we can see that grammar is arbitrary. It's an invention of human beings. And actually the rules are used intentionally to prove that people who don't know what the rules are are inferior to people who do know what the rules are. And the rules are used to erase some people. Right. When you use he as the default, you erase the importance of people who are not hymns. You know? All men are created equal, right? Right. Right. Yeah. To include women in the sequel. Uh, we learned that everything we thought we knew was wrong. We learned that the rules don't matter, and what matters is humanity. The rules are, in fact, oppressive. Are, in fact, actively A form oppressive. of social control. Right. So the first time you tell someone that it's correct to use they as a singular pronoun, odds are they're going to say, wait, no, 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 I, wait, I learned that you have to say he or she. Because, yeah. I mean, we I know what the rule hard. is. I've been following it my whole life. Yeah, we, we're invested in that rule. Like, yes. Our identity. And the fact that I know that rule is a measure of my goodness as a person because I got that education that is valuable. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So instead of just telling someone, hey, there's a new rule, you have to explain that grammar isn't what they were told it is. Gender isn't what they were told it is. Yeah. The world is wider and more complex than they were taught. And now here's this opportunity to see themselves and other people with more nuance and more openness. I sobbed on the phone and I was like, people feelings inclusion matters more than the fucking rule when i was trying to change the thing and i like i got i I think come as you are might have been the first book that used singular they threw out from simon and schuster yeah because i like cried on the phone and i was like i just insist that you break the rule i don't think i convinced anyone that like the rule didn't matter but i convinced them that it mattered enough to me for them to be like fine fine whatever yeah yeah I like this. Hopefully, I like this parallel. Gradually, as people come to learn that singular they is okay, it teaches them not just here's a new rule, but here's a new truth about the way the universe works, about the ways that the rules are invented by people and imposed on the rest of us and are used in oppressive and judgmental ways that maybe we could take this opportunity to see differently. Yeah, that's that's a really good analogy. I love that. Okay, good. Because talking about the bikini industrial complex is like talking about that because it requires us to recognize that we were all taught a bunch of rules and we were taught that those rules really mattered and that they're hard and fast rules and everyone agrees on those rules and our whole culture is built on those rules. And a lot of us tie our identity to them. We we believe that we are educated, good, honorable people. Much more deeply than to grammatical correctness. We can measure our worth Yes. Frankly, on a scale. And it's and it's overcoming that sense of identity to that moral 
value. Yes, that I learned the rule and I have spent my entire life trying to follow this rule and you're trying to tell me the rule doesn't matter? Yeah. Yeah. So the first time you tell someone that, hey, people with more fat on their bodies are just as likely to be completely healthy as people with very little fat on their bodies. That's, they're going to have the same response as, you know, single day. <laughs> Wait, no, I learned, I learned a rule. You have to be thin to be healthy. I learned that in school. I learned BMI. I learned BMI. I, I know that, what my healthy BMI is. And I that's spend science. every day some time thinking about how to get my BMI to match what my BMI said it was supposed to be. Because I've been told that that matters a lot, that that makes me a good and valuable and decent person. By my doctor. By my doctor. So the fact is that that rule is, is like grammar. It's, it's made up. It's arbitrary. Yep. Made up mostly by white men, mostly to confirm their own biases. Yes. And the rules haven't been rewritten yet because those rules are so deeply entrenched in media and medicine and government and physical infrastructure and language. And the fact is the rules are not what we were taught. The relationship between body size and health is not what we were taught. It is not. Singular they is acceptable and the relationship between body, health, and size is not what we were taught. It has been forever. Jane Austen knew it was true. <laughs> yes. Yes. So this is why we avoid talking about the bikini industrial complex. It's big and people are so carefully taught that thin equals healthy that as soon as you propose the possibility that like fat people are just as likely to be healthy, that it's really difficult to get past the information that they believe for so long. It's yeah. difficult to convince people that like something we've been taught, that relationship between weight and health, it's, it's a lie. The government backs that information. Yes. It's propagated by medical professionals. To say that whole system is broken and wrong, it starts to sound a little paranoid. It, like, Yeah, it's hard for it not to be framed as a conspiracy theory because it's like, yeah. you mean the government is lying to us, Amelia, about our health? I literally <laughs> do. I literally mean that, yes. Uh, and like, yeah. In fact, the, the $100 billion industry that profits from our suffering has actually lobbied the government so successfully that its ideas have become official government policy. Yeah. And then we get into the truly conspiracy searing, conspiracy theory sounding ideas about how women's weight is policed more intensely than men's weight. So much more. And that this corruption means that a profiteering industry has taken control of our bodies by convincing us that our main priority needs to be obedience to that single preconceived ideal of behavior and appearance. And it sounds like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat right now. I recognize that. But singular they is an option. Singular they is a respectful and good idea to use. And also the relationship between weight and health is not what you think it is. And believing that the relationship between weight and health is the thing that you've been taught is actually damaging to a huge portion of the population, including thin people. Yes. So my point is, I'm not sure how to like actually talk about this in a way that is convincing to someone who really believes that sin equals healthy. But, so I want to start by talking about some inconsistencies that we all recognize. Okay. Okay. Overwhelmingly, we assume that to be thinner is to be healthier, but it's not true, of course. So there's that line from The Devil Wears Prada. Emily Blunt says she just one stomach flew away from her goal weight. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. It's funny and horrible. And haven't we all had that thought? Yes. That, like weight loss is sort of a silver lining to getting sick. Right? I'm going to, I'm going to reveal the darkness in my own brain when yeah. I say that 
this one time it went through my head that like if i got covid i'd probably lose a bunch of weight i've lost weight on covid because i have no appetite yeah i bet i saw I, feel terrible. I saw a medical professional who had covid interviewed about his experience and he said is there any good that has come of it and he said he lost 30 pounds and he was really hoping to keep it off oh fuck yeah sorry like yeah. weight loss is also a side effect of chemotherapy right right Someone who suffers from anorexia may well lose weight, but that is a sign of the illness, not a sign of improved health. Right. It's a symptom. Right. So do we recognize that thinness does not equal health, at least in some circumstances? We have to recognize that, yeah, yeah. weight loss. And let's be a little more specific and clear about what we mean by weight loss, because you have also lost weight if you get gangrene and have to have a limb removed. Right. Your body will weigh less after that. Right. You right. have lost weight from your body. Right. Use, so let's let's make sure we recognize that even though we always use the word weight, what we mean is fat. Fat. Because it's measured by weight and BMI is not a measurement of fat. It's a it's a relative proportion of height to weight. That's it. And we like let's bear in mind that fat is an organ in your body, like your mm -hmm. leg, like your liver, like your brain. It's an organ. Muscle is an or it's like it's an organ. It belongs there. It has a job to do. Yeah, it does stuff for you. Yeah. And it can get things wrong with it just as any other organ can get things wrong with it. But it, it, is, it is not that like there's you and then there's the fat that just sort of lived, lives on your body. It's an organ. It's part of you. Yeah. It belongs to you. And, and let me pause for a moment because like that all by itself, for people who are new to this idea, the idea that their fat belongs on their body can be very upsetting. Like very upsetting. When you notice that feeling, you're going to like turn toward the fat on your body with kindness and compassion. Notice the ways that it has been injured by your hatred and disassociation from it and be kind and compassionate. Maybe even ask for its forgiveness and send it the love that it has been longing for all this time. Just like pause for moments when you notice yourself hating parts of your body. The parts that you hate the most are the parts of your body that need the most attention, kindness, and love. Okay, mm -hmm. keep going. So thinness doesn't equal health, but we tend to think, well, okay, sometimes sickness, you lose weight, but that's the exception, right? No. Turns out, um, we're going to put a link to this article from The Lancet. It's a 26, 2016 meta-analysis of studies of weight and health, and um, we'll put the chart. Emily, I think we should put the chart. I wrote a blog post at the time about it, so we'll put oh, my good. blog post at the time. A link to the blog post. Could you just sum it up real quick? Yeah. Okay. So uh, you're going to imagine a chart that's got all the different BMIs on it and a little, a little like block over Just top. in case anybody doesn't know, BMI is body mass index. It's a, it's a ratio of height to weight. It's a ratio of height to weight. And there's this sort of like U-curve. It's actually like a, a, a Nike swoosh curve showing the overall global mortality and morbidity associated with a BMI. And the... Mortality and morbidity is death and sickness. Right. Of, of any, by any cause. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do I say this? Okay. I'm just going to, I'm just going to read. The healthy nor the normal weight my air, air quote fingers are like gonna sprain themselves with the way i'm talking about it is 22 and a half to 25 bmi so there are numbers this is a ratio so it's a number and then it also has labels 
where like this number is labeled underweight and this label, this number is labeled healthy and this number is labeled overweight. So we put a value. And then we get into like obesity one, obesity two. Right. So those labels were, we'll talk about the source of those labels later, but for right now, let's just talk about the graph. So, and a BMI of 18 is underweight. What I want you to just like this one sentence, the BMI between 30 and 35, which is 30 is the obese level, is lower risk than the BMI under 18. It is lower risk. So it's safer to be obese than to be underweight. Yes. According to the BMI chart. According to like global population level, this is like 4 million people in this meta-analysis. Yeah. Okay. And then when they segregate out men from women, the 30 plus is like half the risk of underweight for women. Yeah. And the more we segregate, the further up we go in body mass index, the clearer it becomes that a BMI of 38 is really about the same level of risk as 18. So it's really safer to be much more quote unquote overweight than it is to be even slightly underweight. Yeah. I mean, what they call normal weight is pretty close to your minimum healthy weight. Right. In reality, that healthy weight is like your minimum safe weight. Yes. Because the rule is you should yes. weigh as little as possible without killing yourself. But really, if you do kill yourself, and you this possible, whole weight thing is okay. much less predictive of health for women yeah. than it is for men, despite no, yeah. the fact that. So here's here's the quote: stigma against fat people causes more negative health consequences, not least because doctors' implicit bias against fat people, as well as people of color and sexual minorities, reduces quality of care. There was a study of medical students where 25% of medical students surveyed reported explicitly, like said so out loud, checked a box on a survey. They said that treating fat people was a waste of their time. And that link is in the is in the is in the blog post that I wrote. Yeah, fat people died of COVID because when they had to decide who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, one of the factors that put you lower on the list was BMI. Even though that's there's no evidence to support the idea that a fat person will not live as long or be as healthy or deserves less care than a thin person. Yeah. Yeah. So this is really important and fucked up. So So in my view, the conclusion of this enormous, huge, high-quality study is, hey, the government says that 18 and a half to 25 is is the healthy range, but actually it's closer to 20 to 30 if you want to have a number on it, which I don't. The the reason I don't want to have that be the thing is the other thing we notice is that the higher weight gets or the more distant weight gets from sort of like the middle, the bigger the error bars are. So the mm-hmm. more variability there is. Um, so the more your weight varies from sort of like the typical range, the less information that gives us about your health. The more different your body is, the less the shape of your body says about your health. About your health. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So we, we so really can't out- even say, here's the healthy range. 
because right, that's not a thing. Yeah. It's not a thing. Weight and health do not have the correlation that we were taught. They, they really, they really don't. Yeah. Turns out. And when you engage in the behaviors that we know, like it is not controversial, the eating vegetables and getting <laughs> physical activity, those things are good for you. For sure. For sure. They are. They're really good for you. You m may not lose weight when you do them. Yeah, it's very likely. It's very unlikely that you will lose weight. And you can still get way healthier. Yeah. yeah. Way healthier. Yeah, because your weight is not a measurement of your health. Because your weight, you cannot measure health on a scale. You cannot measure health on a scale. You can't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're going to link to some okay, resources so science, that decades of it. Yeah. That has been right. ignored by researchers because of a phenomenon called scientific weightism. Right. Where researchers truly cannot see past their own assumption and bias around yes. fat people. Yes. So we're going to link to resources that detail the history of, I don't think we have time to go into the history of how this aesthetic ideal came to be, theories about why, and resources that recount the history of the yeah. government's creation of a system that turned this aesthetic preference into an official health mandate. Right. Uh, the, the long story short is bias and corruption. Uh, one very fast example. And patriarchy. Yeah. Is that the BMI chart that insurance companies use to determine what kind of care they cover? That chart was created by a panel of nine people, seven of whom worked in the weight loss industry. The BMI chart, the one in the doctor's offices all over the country, is literally propaganda from the weight loss industry and it's yes. used to guide medical care. So we call it the bikini industrial complex. It's a $100 billion cluster of businesses that profit by selling an unattainable aspirational ideal to us, convincing us that we both can and should, and indeed we must, conform to the ideal. And then they sell us ineffective but plausible strategies for achieving that ideal. Sounds like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat right now, I know that, but it's, it's just a fact, it's just information. Yes. And like, it's easy to prove that this, that it has not always been held as the ideal and that it has not always been assumed that it was healthy. Yeah. Easy. Like you just have to go back 200 years. Yeah. That's all. And you can see that women in art were a totally different shape and size, like the glorified, culturally constructed, aspirational beauty ideal in the white West was really pale skin and a soft round body that by today's dress sizes would be about like a 16. There were totally like rolls of fat along her back um, mm -hmm. and dimples in the fat on her butt and thighs. When I first learned about Rubens in an art history class in high school, I learned that Rubens was some kind of weird freak show obsessive about like kind of a fetishist about fat women. <sighs> That's how it was taught to me. When, in fact, it's just women who could afford, right. you know, not to labor in the fields all day and had access to, like, abundant food that they didn't have to work for. They were the ones who had the, the people who had that luxury were the ones who could accumulate any kind of fat on their bodies. I want to correct a thing I just said about that's how I was taught about it, because it's actually true that Mrs. Watson, my art history teacher, loved these paintings. She celebrated them. She's like, look at that gorgeous woman. And in my brain, I was thinking this is an exception because we hadn't seen that any other pictures. That is so important because when you said that, I was like, that is not the way I learned it. I remember being in that art history class and that is not what I took away. No, yeah, no. So it was she, what happened in your brain. Yes, but also in the context of that class and of all the other images I had seen, 
um, these were exceptions. These were unusual. These were freakish to me. Fetishist. Yeah, at that time. Because we didn't, it's not like all the other images we saw were also voluptuous, curvaceous, you know, women with rolls of fat on their body. It's not like it was so common. And now all of a sudden in the 20th century, now people are thin. No, no, no. It's, yeah. Anyway, um, so while we're talking about this, let's talk about manifestations of the bikini industrial complex. Okay. And one of them is media. It's art. In the long history of art, we see what is the aesthetic ideal. And these days we are bombarded by media images that are, I mean, they're really there to sell us thinness. Magazine covers. Yes. Advertising for all kinds of products are dominated by one vision of womanhood. Like advertising for products that are like beauty and cosmetic products, but also advertisements for beer, advertisements for, you know, windows and, and exterior cladding for houses is all sold by thin white women with long blonde hair, basically. Yeah? Yeah. And so this floods our subconscious with suggestion that everyone else looks like that or is trying to look like that. So we have to also... Certainly is supposed to look like that. Yes. So we spend our whole lives... And anyone who doesn't is doing it wrong, and that includes us and everyone around us. Right. Yeah. That we're all worried about it. We all should be worried about it. And we've spent our money trying to buy solutions to do that. Yeah. And that's ads explicitly about weight loss and also just the overwhelming presence of some people in media. As if fat people don't really exist. Right? Oh, yeah. And if there are any fat people, then they're they're jokes or they're tragic figures who are trying to lose weight. Yeah. Well, that's how you make yourself acceptable in right. the bikini industrial complex. If you're a fat person, is to be constantly dissatisfied with your body shape and constantly working to right. make it behave. Yeah. I know you all hate my body. Rules. I hate it too. I'm trying. Yeah. Yeah. But so that's how the bikini industrial complex. I know that I'm a failure. Oh, yeah. Jesus. So Whew. deeper than media, the bikini industrial complex uh, manifests in the infrastructure of society. Mm-hmm. Chairs in public places, theaters, right, arms. restaurants, even hospitals. I consider it part of accessibility at any event that I do that there be seats that do not have arms. Right. So that they're not just designed for people of a pretty narrow range of sizes. Every and one time somebody noticed that and said thank you. <laughs> I, yeah. One time, which is like amazing that anybody would bother would to even like notice, notice yeah. that I was. Yeah. There are, in doctor's offices now, when you go to waiting rooms, there tend to be mostly chairs with arms and then like one or two that are like the fat person chair, I guess. So even that just still feels really like you're making an exception of a person who is actually right. just a person. Right. And Another manifestation of the bikini industrial complex is more insidious than infrastructure, and that is implicit bias against fat people. Yeah. Which we've already talked about a little bit, the stigma. Stigma right. means Reduced that quality of medical care. Reduced quality of medical care. Children are bullied even by their teachers. By their teachers. Fat children are bullied by their teachers because their teachers even believe that this child has done something wrong, that this child needs help, that this child is inferior to other children because of decisions that they have made. Because the bikini industrial complex has convinced us that fat is not just a measure of health, it's a measure of morality. Fat people are um, greedy and lazy because they eat too much and don't move enough. And we know, like, the, oh, the, you should, like, it's just, it's so, there is no evidence that 
any weight loss, weight loss plan of physical activity and changing your food leads to sustained weight loss. There is no evidence that any plan leads to sustain. There is not the relationship we think there is between physical activity, nutrition, and weight. There is not. No. Improving so it is the not, quality it is of not, nutrition. It is not individual behaviors that no. govern. Body shape is largely genetic and or epigenetic. Yeah. Largely. There are some lifestyle factors that influence it, which are mostly cultural and political, like the structure of our food system, which we just barely talked about in the last yeah. episode. Yeah. So it means that medical training doesn't eliminate scientific weightism. It does not. It's, it's, and, and even probably your doctor, my doctor, probably any medical professional you see believes or holds the unsubstantiated assumption that fat is dangerous. Yes. So let's and that there is a real relationship between yeah. fat and uh, health. Can I tell my can I can I tell my just five pound story? Please do. Okay. So um, when I was working at Smith College, I was being confronted with the question of how to talk about nutrition and physical activity, which are important aspects of health. When I was in a room full of young women and non-binary and trans people, some of whom had been fat shamed their entire lives and some of whom uh, were in recovery from or still struggling with an eating disorder. How do you talk about weight and health? I, having been trained my whole life, PhD in public health, right? My whole life in the bikini industrial complex. And I thought about it for myself too, because my weight has never, never been within the healthy weight. My whole nope. adult life, I have never weighed what I was supposed to weigh ever once. So I was at my doctor for just a regular appointment. And I said, so, hey, I've always been um, 10 pounds over my medically defined ideal weight. I said to my doctor, how much, like, what is the actual risk associated with this 10 pounds? How important is it that I try to lose this extra 10 pounds? I asked her. And she said... Just lose five. And I could tell in that moment that she had just made, made that, up. that up. She could mm -hmm. not tell me what the risk was. So she made the safe middle of the road thing like, okay, so I, I have no idea how important that 10 pounds is, but I know that weight matters. So lose five. She didn't have any information about like how I should lose that. Cause I had also been like, I eat vegetables every day. I run with my dog every day. Like I'm my resting heart rate is 64 beats a minute. Like I'm healthy. I'm healthy apart from this asthma that I came to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, she said, just lose five. And that was when I was like, okay, so that was some fiction my doctor just told me. Mm -hmm. She just made some shit up and now it is up to me. I have to go read the fucking research myself and find out how important it is so that when I teach my students, I'm not like just making some shit up. Like my doctor just made some shit up in front of me. And that is the impetus for me finding Health at Every Size. Yeah. That's how health I at every size is a Health at Every Size is a book that it's kind of in two halves. The first half talks about the actual science of food intake and digestion and then it also studies uh, talks about how stigma is more dangerous to fat people than having fat on their bodies yes um, it's a really great book and it tells this story of how the bmi chart was created it's we highly highly recommend it please go read help at every size right away 
And if you can find a health at every size practitioner, dedicate yourself to that practitioner because ever since then, I have declined to be weighed at the doctor's yeah. office. And uh, I we've talked in the bikini in the in the new hotness episode. We talked about how this one time at the doctor's office, uh, I had to like talk to my doctor about like she's like, but talking about weight is just standard practice. And I had to say, well, standard practice doesn't mean it's evidence based practice. And yeah. she looked like I had slapped her in the face, which yeah. I kind of had. Yeah. We tell a story in the book about a student of yours who was an Olympic figure skater with more oh, God, yeah. mass than is typical. It's more like a typical of a man her height. So she's a professional athlete, one of the healthiest, most fit human beings on the planet. Yes. But her doctor looks at how many pounds she weighs and suggests she needs to lose weight. She was so low body fat, she was skipping periods. Yeah. It makes me, I have, I can't tell you how many stories I have like that. Yeah. I, I am the same size as you and I've been told to lose weight a bunch of times, specifically when I was 30 pounds less than I am now. Right. I was told to lose weight because I was having knee pain and I did lose weight. And I still had knee pain and I weigh much more now and I do not have knee pain anymore. Yeah. Why? Because my weight had nothing to do with my knee pain. Yeah. It was just a convenient scapegoat. And, and I've lost count of the times when I've lost weight because I was ill and yet got compliments on my appearance. I look so great. People told me when in fact, those were the times in my life when I was the least healthy. Oh yeah. After the 20, 2004 election. I was so depressed I couldn't taste food. Like I was not sleeping at all. I was barely eating anything at all. And I lost a bunch of weight in a very short amount of time. I was sitting on the floor in the office I shared with three other women trying to eat food. And it tasted like, you know, cardboard and water. And someone comes over to me and says, Emily, you look great. How did you do it? And I looked up from the floor with my bowl of food I couldn't taste and said, stress and depression. And she went, oh, yeah. like she was clearly sorry and recognized yeah. what had happened. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so we're we're using some numbers here and I want to recognize that um, numbers are basically meaningless, except in, in the context of like doctors look at those numbers and they think they're really important. Mostly you want to talk about the endocrinologist? Oh my God, the endocrinologist. Oh God. Okay. So um, diabetes runs in our family. I had noticed that my body's response to my body's insulin response was changing. And I wanted to get a professional opinion. So I went to an endocrinologist. I did not let them weigh me, but I did let them measure my fasting blood sugar. My fasting blood sugar was what is typically identified as the risk range, which I knew it would be because I knew. But I, I didn't let them weigh me. And he, so the doctor, when he came in, asked how much I weighed. <laughs> he asked how much I weighed. <laughs> and I said, uh, I don't think weight matters. I know that it's not a predictor of anything in particular. Please read health at every size, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he said, and the thing is, I know. As an adult, my weight has never been in the healthy range. I knew that if he knew the number, he would tell me to lose weight because mm -hmm. the numbers in that range mm -hmm. where the doctor mm -hmm. tells people to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And he said, <laughs> mm -hmm. he said, well, looking at you, your weight doesn't seem like a problem to me. Because <laughs> oh, he could see my blood chemistry, I guess. 
by looking at the shape of my body. Whew. Yeah. Whew. And yeah. it was like, it was, it was so fascinating because on the one hand, I don't conform to the culturally constructed aspirational beauty ideal. And when I go out into the world uh, for media stuff, I'm treated like a person of size, which like, because my body has been a lot of different shapes and sizes while I've been out in the world as a public person, I can recognize the difference in how I'm treated based on the shape and size of my body. Yeah, when you were publicizing Come As You Are five years ago, you were much thinner than you are now. Yeah, I made a deliberate choice to change the shape of my body so that I would be taken more seriously because I'm very familiar with the research on how um, thin people are taken more seriously, treated more as experts. And I was like, I will do whatever it takes to get this message out. And one of the things that I could do was temporarily shift the shape and size of my body. I... My blood pressure was so low from eating that way that I almost passed out in the street in New York City. Uh-huh. Like I was I was not healthy. I was very not healthy and real depressed because I was hungry all the time. It was not good for me, but it was a sacrifice that I made because I knew that it would help me be taken seriously as an expert. Yeah. And it worked. Like yeah. it, I really like it was it was fun. It was nice to be treated like a thin person. It yeah. was great, <laughs> but it was yeah. not something I could sustain for the long term because I was really depressed and uh, fainting, um, like passed out, like ears rushing, like the darkness closing in in my vision. Like it was bad. Yeah. So, so you know how, what it's like to be treated as a thin person versus right. how you're treated when you're not thin. So it was really strange that in the endocrinologist's office at my like more healthy- Wait, hold on. I just, for people who don't, haven't seen us, we're both like Lane Bryant fat. We're like on the cusp between standard sizes and plus sizes, like a 12, 14, 16. Yeah, we're very average. We are very Very much- Very average for American women. Yes. Five foot six, five foot seven. We're, We're totally average. If you look up the statistics of the average size of American woman, you are looking at us. Yes. And yet that averageness- counts in the public eye as too fat to be taken seriously as an expert on anything you were actually described um someone looked at the picture of you on the cover oh god i forgot about that and described you as a plump young lady plump young lady yeah you're like because the photograph was taken before i had uh like done the whole like i'm gonna lose 15 percent of my mass to be taken seriously so so i was at my like natural weight then And uh, so I was described as, a, it was it was surprising that this plump young lady could could know so much <laughs> yeah, I know. about women's sexuality, because there absolutely is an expectation that a expert on women's sexuality, who is also a woman, is going to conform to the aspirational beauty ideal, because how can you be an expert in women's sexuality without also being sexually desirable yourself? I am yeah. not, by that standard, sexually desirable, so how can I possibly know anything be an expert in sexuality right yeah so it was surprising that this plump young lady could know so much with a phd in training at the kinsey institute no worries when we were writing burnout um there was a call in one of the choral organizations professional organizations for choral conductors to for someone to come to a conference and present about stress management and like taking care of yourself self-care for conductors and i was like well, shit, I'm a conductor and I'm writing a book about like burnout and, you know, stress management. I should definitely do this. I submitted a proposal. They did not accept my proposal. 
What they did accept was a proposal by two women who looked like fitness models, who talked about weight training and cardio, and when they came to, and they also asked us to talk about stress, and they proposed, they like, as a joke, kind of pulled out a bottle of wine and goes, here you go. And I was like, they, they picked those two ladies because they have toned biceps. Because they look like hair. they're experts in stress. Because they look, they look fit. Their body sure um, you conform to that culturally constructed aspirational beauty yeah. ideal. And me and my three years of research I've been doing about how to manage stress as a, as a conductor and a musician, they, um, that didn't matter. Yeah. Boy. So how you look matters. It's true. That's so, um, how the, the world treats you. The contrast you. here is that uh, on the one hand, I knew that the shape of my body would mean I'd be taken less seriously at a TV station or a radio show even. <laughs> Yeah. Because you show up and you look a certain way and people make a decision about how they're going to treat you. Yep. And, uh, but in my endocrinologist's office, my weight was not a problem. Right. And like, that was a helpful It would have been a problem like, if, he known, of, if he had yeah, known. If he had known the weight, number, it he would have. Thought, he would have told you to lose weight. Right. But because I didn't let him know the number and he was just going by how I looked, I didn't look like the more fat patients where it was obvious that they right. needed to be losing weight. P.S. Did he know about my physical activity or nutrition? He did not at that point yet know. We were talking about weight before we were talking about my food choices. When yep. we were talking about diabetes. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so it was an interesting flash of like privilege that on the one hand, I was very aware of the ways that my body was a barrier to me being taken seriously as an expert out in the, the world professionally. But in my doctor's office, actually, I was privileged to be taken more seriously and given more respect and told that I didn't have to worry about this uh, because I came closer to conforming to the culturally constructed aspirational ideal than maybe other patients do. Yeah. So it was a, it was a very fascinating experience. I cried a lot afterward. Yeah. Like it's just so complicated. Yeah. My thin, very young endocrinologist male. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's, now we know everything that we were taught about health and weight is a lie. And most of our medical providers are still acting under the belief that a lie is true. Mm -hmm. So, so, so what do we do? Yeah. I think there's going to be two categories of listeners right now. There's going to be listeners who are completely not convinced. And they think that this is paranoid tinfoil hat territory. Uh, in which case I'm just going to say, that's totally fine. You can behave and act and believe however makes you happy. I'm going to encourage those people to read Health at Every Size, especially the second half of Health at Every Size, because that takes a, a lot more time and presents a lot more science um, to describe what we've just talked about in yeah. the, a short. Our one podcast episode is not going to convince you yeah, that the thing okay. you've dedicated your entire life to conforming to has all been a lie, like, like the grammar that we started with. Right. Singular they is a, is a good idea. It's you're allowed to do it, and it's in fact more respectful and more inclusive of more people. And that's a rule that you probably didn't know a few years ago, and now you know. And this might be another thing that turns out to be that. So yes. I invite you to explore with curiosity the possibility that the relationship between weight and health is not what you think it is. And then there's another category of listeners and people who are going, yes, this lines up with my experience. This feels really true to me. I'm going to read health at every size, but I'm already convinced that this is true. Just what do I do? How do I keep living in a world that is made of this, you know, industrialized profiteering 
pervasive industry that is intending to suck my money out of me so that I spend my life worrying and trying to conform to a arbitrary, culturally constructed beauty ideal. What do we do? Fortunately, this is a place where there are a lot of things that you can do. And I want to make it clear that that doesn't mean it's ever going to be easy. Um, We had a listener write in about our White Ladies Who Try episode Mm -hmm. um, to say that she was a white lady who always assumed that racism was like the Ku Klux Klan and hadn't sort of recognized yet that whiteness shows up in more insidious dark ways and she wasn't glad to have that information but she knew it was necessary so thanks a fucking lot basically she was saying both (laughs) sincerely and sarcastically um and this is this is another one of those where once you see it you're down the rabbit hole and now like everything is wrong everywhere you go every day like it's so insidious it makes going to the doctor fraught with a kind of like hi, I need to make sure that you think about my body the way I think about my body. Let me help you do that, which is a sort of responsibility that then people don't have to have. And uh, it can be exhausting. Um, And you go out into the world and you eat at restaurants. Well, (laughs) we're not eating at restaurants with friends now, (laughs) most places. Um, But you eat in public and people talk about food and food choices and body and like whether they deserve dessert and being bad because they're making different food choices. And it's all language that comes from the bikini industrial complex. It's not anything that we inherently are born feeling or believing about our bodies and our food choices and our activity choices. It's stuff that we have learned from this toxic system. Yeah. And it's pervasive. um, And you will start hearing it in the way people talk to their children about their bodies. And Mm -hmm. it's going to like make you cringe and activate something in your body. And uh, there are things you can do about that. So like, yeah, we are down the rabbit hole and this is going to change your relationship with living with the world. And that's okay. Welcome to it. Like, it's okay. Like you're part of change now and that's a good thing. And it's a hard thing. So thing number one, the mirror activity, which I recommend everyone everywhere do. You take off your clothes, you look in a full length mirror at everything you see and you start writing down the things you see that you like. This is from a clinical intervention for college-age women to prevent disordered eating. Uh, And this is a a cognitive dissonance exercise is what it gets called because as soon as you start looking for the things you like, what happens in your brain? You see the things you don't like. Oh yeah, your brain starts like crowding and shouting at you about all the things that you've been taught are wrong about you have to change about your body but that's fine and normal you just the whole point is you set those things aside and you start looking for the things you like you know what if it's your eyelashes or your eye color you write that down because you can see it if it is your smile if it is your ankle bones if it is the inside of your elbows you write that down if it's your spirit because you can see that in your eyes write that down and then you do it again the next day and then you do it again the next day. You do it every day for a month. And what will happen is you gradually begin to be able to see your body without the lens of the bikini industrial complex. And you'll recognize what a fucking miracle your body is, regardless of the ways that it falls short of any culturally constructed aspirational ideals, even in the ways that it might fall short of the things you wish you were true. If you have chronic health issues, pain, if you have disabilities, you'll be able to see the beauty of your body when you practice looking for it, which will make it 
it's a sort of inoculation against the bikini industrial complex and the body criticism and self-criticism that otherwise fills our heads in our days. That's number one. Number mm -hmm. two is media nutrition. So begin to notice what it feels like to expose yourself to certain magazines, TV shows, images, websites. And if things make you feel like shit about yourself, don't consume them. Don't look at them. Don't watch them. Don't read them. Just don't. Or make a choice about whether or not you want to. I gave this advice one time uh, with a group of college students and there was a student who was like nice and explicit about the fact that it was a kind of suffering and torture that she that was satisfying on some level, which I thought okay. was like a neat <laughs> insight. And like, cool, if that kind of like despair inducing media, if that sort of like it's a little bit poisonous, but in a way that I find like really it's it's like when you like push on a cold sore, yeah. you like suck it and make it hurt. And there's something like perversely wonderful about it. Like again, it's up to you to make a choice. You can choose. Know that you have a choice about whether or not to do that to yourself, right? And mm -hmm. thing number three is go back to our bubble of love episode. You create a bubble of people around you who agree that they are not going to engage in fat talk, body talk, calorie talk, food talk. They're just not going to talk about food in terms of weight even health. And you talk about, because food is wonderful to talk about, but you talk about it in terms of pleasure and sometimes complexity and complaining about how expensive it is and how difficult it is. See our last episode of food. It's complicated. <laughs> like you can talk about it in those ways. And if you truly recognize that what counts as healthy for you is different from what counts as healthy for other people, you can talk about health stuff too, because what's your health choices are not a judgment on other people's health choices and their health choices are not a judgment on your health choices. Everybody has to do their thing that works for them. And so if you can truly deeply with these people talk about food in a way that's like about individual personal choices through uh, what we call connected knowing in the book, great, great. And like you're just, you're only going to say, kind, loving things about each other's bodies. Mm -hmm. And you're even only going to say kind, loving things about your own body. You will never mm -hmm. talk about your body differently than you talk about other people's bodies. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we will all say like, oh, like this, this quarantine, like I've gained so much weight and I feel so fat and so ugly and so like lazy and gross. Like you would, you would never like, if would you ever say that to me? About my body, like, Emily, this quarantine, like, you just look so gross. No. No. <laughs> Would you say that about yourself, though? Would it go through your mind? Like, you know now not to say it out loud, but yeah. would you, what, does it go through your mind to look at your Absolutely. body and be like, yeah. A hundred percent. But I, yeah. And that actually is yeah. another thing that I want to talk about, which is the, the, one of the strategies we talk about in the book, we call it mess acceptance. But originally the title of that whole oh, chapter yeah. was Embrace Tiger. Because I'm going to refer people to our Embrace Tiger episode because the practice the Embrace Tiger of episode living, here. It's a mess. living in the bikini industrial complex is you are constantly living with tiger and you need to like, you have to be in the world. You ha you're going to be exposed to it. And instead of choosing to let it harm you, you recognize that I live in a world that's tainted by the bikini industrial complex, but I've been lied to about the relationship between health 
and the weight and size of my body. And I'm just going to turn toward my body with kindness and compassion and turn to it without judgment and try to let these two things exist because the mutual interplay of opposites is the nature of the universe, is the nature of existence. Embrace tiger, return to mountain. Right. And your body and spirit are the mountain. And you can prioritize your well-being without prioritizing your weight, knowing that when you do that, you're going to be attacked by the world and by sort of like the monstrous part of yourself that is totally sure you could conform and says, you know, if you would just lose the weight, you'd be taken more seriously. You wouldn't have to fight so hard to receive care medically. You wouldn't have to, you, you'd be able to find love if only your body conformed. And so like, how dare you accept yourself as you are? Like, it's a mess. Trying to accept yourself is very messy and complicated and difficult because you, you, uh, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and you see the things that you love and you put on clothes that make you feel like the new hotness and then you go out into the world and maybe you need to like, you know, buy some new underwear and you're talking about how things have changed with your body and the person you're shopping with says, but you're going to lose the weight, right? And Whoa. like, it's just an arrow directly into like the bubble you've been trying to inflate around yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Embrace tiger. Embrace tiger. New hotness. Food, it's complicated. Bubble of love. Yeah. I, I see now why we had to wait so long to do this episode because we had mm. to like build all of that infrastructure. Also, again, the process of dealing with the stress is separate from the process of dealing with the stressor. Mm. You complete the stress response cycles that get activated by all this stuff in whatever way helps your body and recognize that like you're going to be exposed to the stressor again. Your stress yeah. response is going to be activated again and you yeah. have to do whatever it takes. Like, why did I cry so much after that? Uh, appointment with the endocrinologist because like all this stress all like my decades of life living in my body were activated and had to be purged like so i could complete the stress that got activated by visiting a doctor mm -hmm. oh boy because we are as uh i think roxanne gay puts it lane bryant fat which is to say like mainstream can still like buy clothes at the mall even it's if totally it's the, the like mall. specialized yeah. sized yeah. mall which is a really different experience from being 100 pounds fatter than we are. Mm -hmm. A doctor would see us in a completely different space. There's no way my doctor would have said, it looks like your weight is not a problem. He would have yeah. told me to lose weight for sure. Yeah. Without, without necessarily knowing how to make that happen for me. So we've talked Can about- Can you just cut off my leg? Because that's, you know, <laughs> 50 I'll pounds. Because like 40 pounds, yeah. And I'll be like halfway there. Thanks. Okay. Um, so we've talked about dealing with the stress separately from dealing with the stressor and embrace tiger mess acceptance. Um, is there anything we can do to change the system to actually stop this thing that's creating this stress so that it doesn't create stress in people anymore? Is there a long-term strategies for actually changing the bikini industrial complex to become something healthier, more compassionate, more honest, more evidence-based? Are you asking or do you know? Yeah, well, the only thing that I have in mind of the thing that we can do to help is to follow fat positive activists. Absolutely. To consume fat positive media and to, when we feel comfortable, speak up as fat positive activists ourselves, especially if you're a thin person. Uh, so one of the feminist fat positive 
activist that we follow and talk about pretty regularly is Sonia Renee Taylor, the author of The Body is Not an Apology. And she, one of her Instagram posts recently was, if you want to find the path to freedom, follow a black woman. So if you are, if you're a white lady listening to this, we were just talking about how you follow fat positive, body inclusive activists. When you are following these people, especially if they are fat women of color, fat trans women of color, that following them to freedom, to find your path is like step one of the process. You could also offer to carry some of the load they are carrying, help them out. You could also watch their backs for them because they're being attacked from all sides. You could also not be part of the burden they are carrying and not be like, there's a lot of like funny buddy movies about how one person is trying to save everybody. And there's somebody on the trip who's like irritating and annoying and just making everything harder. Don't be, Mm -hmm. don't be that person. Make it easier. Make it helpful. Like be part of the solution. Like maybe cut some bushwhack some of the path because when black women are leading on the path to freedom they are having to create the path as they go so help them out like follow people yes and help them (laughs) ask what they need it is a thing we say over and over again deal with your own shit process your own shit notice Notice the way the bikini industrial complex lives in your body, in your thoughts, in your feelings, and manage your own shit, heal your own trauma, process your own deep internal racism and white supremacist delusion, as Sonia Renee Taylor says. Deal with your shit. If you're going to follow these people, you can't go into their virtual space and like blur your bullshit all over their space. They don't deserve that. They deserve to live without your bullshit. So it's your job to deal with that. I just, because, because it was a thing recently on Sonia Renee Taylor's feed that she was like, that is not, a white person responded to her saying that uh, black women were her heroes and she believed black women were going to save us all. Yikes. Oh, white lady. Oh, like my heart, like. Okay, so when we say. Because we also, we haven't even talked about the ways that the uh, bikini industrial complex is racist. We haven't even talked about the ways that the culturally constructed aspirational thin ideal. Is a white ideal. I know, it's already been an hour. Yeah. So when we (sighs) say follow activists, we mean follow them and absorb the information that is given to you, but... Witness, learn, grow, and share. Yeah. Don't necessarily ask them specifically to educate you. Yeah. Yeah. Don't expect them to uh, fix everything. Yeah. And you don't have to do anything. Yeah. You're, yeah. We, so one thing you can do is like do that work. And one way to begin that work and activation for that work is to follow people who are speaking this message. Yes. That's one. Just so that the information that's coming to you is not just coming from the bikini industrial complex, but also coming from the rebels. Yes. The unruly women, as Roxane Gay puts it. Yes. The unruly bodies. Yeah. Like hers. So embrace Tiger, consume messages that are contrary to the beginning industrial complex's message, and, you know, be be nice to those people (laughs) who are giving you that message. Yeah. Yeah. Ask how you can be of, ask yourself how you can be of service 
to the people who are bushwhacking the path to freedom. Yeah. Do you have specific ideas of how people can do that? I mean, I the way I do it, because it is part of my job, when I train groups of therapists and physicians, I talk about health at every size. I ask people to notice their internal reactions. I have this, I, uh, she is so beautiful. Have we talked about the she is so beautiful exercise? Yeah, let's, but I'm just talking about like regular people. I'm not talking about people who train therapists. I'm talking about normal people in their everyday lives. How can they be of service to the health at every size movement? I, for example, here's a little easy one, <laughs> really easy one. Next time you're on an airplane and a fat person sits next to you, don't give a big old sigh and roll your eyes and be visibly uncomfortable with the fact. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on an airplane and a fat person sits down and the person next to them is like clearly unhappy. Yeah. That's like a really easy and one. That person has just confirmed all the fears and dread that that fat person had walking onto that plane. Yes. These yeah. are like the daily thing you can do instead is say, would you prefer the arm up or down? Do you have a preference? Yeah. That's a thing you can do. That's a thing you can do. It's real easy. Yeah. And like have your own response be like, here is a person who has to sit in a seat and has to deal with a whole lot of bullshit that I also may or may not have to deal with. And so I'm going to like turn toward that person with kindness and compassion and treat them the way I would want to be treated. Yeah. Which is to say without contempt. That's a, that's a thing you can do. But I think it really comes down to, like, deal with your shit. Because you can't do that until you notice that you're having that reaction and right. are like, wait a minute. Is that the reaction that I would want for myself? Is that a reaction that is fair and just? Or is that just the bikini industrial complex showing right. up in my body the way my, like, culturally learned racism shows up in my body? Fat phobia is... Like every other bias, it's like herpes. Yeah. We, we all have it. <laughs> <laughs> the goal is just not to spread it. You want to reduce outbreaks. It's not that person's and fault. And not expose other people to our virus. Yeah. It's not that person's fault that that chair is so small and that it's so close to yours. It's so fucked up that the airplane built an airline, built a plane with seats that are so tiny that a huge number of people cannot fit comfortably in those seats. That is not the fault of the human being who needs to fly to their grandmother's wedding or whatever. So don't take it out on them. It's not their fault. And it's not oh, your fault. I love fault. that you said grandmother's wedding. That was awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Like people have to go to things and go places and, and whether yeah. they're thin or fat. And for fat people, it's harder to make that choice. They have to, you know, accept that it's going to be some difficult thing. And we, the rest of us who maybe fit in those chairs more comfortably can make it easier for them by not blaming that person for the airplane's chairs being so tiny. Why are the airplane chairs that tiny? Oh, to profit the airline. That's why, because it's part of the bikini industrial complex. The infrastructure of an airplane is meant to profit by forcing people to only be comfortable when they're small. Singular day. We, we, we spent a lot of our lives being taught that that was wrong. Turns out that was just a way to control people and to make some people invisible and uh, contemptible. Uh, turns out it's not true. Mm -hmm. Ditto the bikini industrial complex, the $100 billion business dedicated to making us hate ourselves. And it includes the medical industry and yeah. the government. Yeah. And we're not wearing tinfoil hats when we say that. That's just the literal truth. Please read Health at Every Size. There's a new book called Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison. And begin to notice 
look at your body and look for the things that you like. Notice the ways that the things you've been taught to hate bubble up in your brain when you do that. And practice setting those things to one side and recognizing that you've been lied to your whole life. There will be some rage that comes with this because you've been lied to your whole life and have invested a lot of time and energy in policing your own body. You will notice yourself having opinions about other people's bodies, having judgments about who they are as people morally based on that body size. All of that is just the things you were lied to. And again, it is not just about your health. It's about both good and bad. You look at someone who is thin and you think, oh, that's a better person than me. You look at someone who is fat and think, well, she's not as good as me. Both directions. Yeah, our we <laughs> we went to uh, like publishing industry women's health day. And there was a diet author who was like the conclusion of the day. Okay. And he looked at a woman, one of the women we were with, this like hugely intelligent, capable, professional woman. And all he could see was how thin she was. Oh, yeah. And he goes that. up to her and like gets in her space and is like, you have the body all my clients want. Oh, God. I remember that. And I was like, she went to Bernard. <laughs> yeah. That motherfucker was a creep. Like. Oh, that was, God. That was really, yeah. that was so, really awful. Yeah. And that's, and I know that walking around in a body like hers, she must experience a lot of stuff and get a lot of judgment and feelings because of it. And yeah. I like, yeah. She does not face Whew. discrimination okay. from her teachers and her doctors, but it's definitely right. also every, every shape and size of body is punished by the bikini industrial complex. Yeah. No one's doing it right. No one's doing it right. No one's coasting through this. Yeah. So welcome to the welcome to the tiger. Welcome to the mess. Yeah. It's a good thing that we've got so many tools for returning to mountain with the dealing with the stress. Yeah. The so stressor. many tools. So many yeah. tools. Pretty much every episode that we've done offers a tool for coping with, for processing, for healing the damage done by the bikini industrial complex. Mad woman. And the more like it's it's like, yeah, the mad woman, I think the abyss is full of the bikini industrial complex. And one of the reasons we made the argument that talking about the bikini industrial complex in a book about stress is so important is that everybody who was raised, everybody who on, on the day you're born, if people went, it's a girl that day, they started drilling into you facts about what your body is supposed to look like, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so our abyss is just full of this stuff for every single person. It is very, it's like the acid lake at the bottom of the abyss. And we all have it. And the more we can look at each other and recognize that like, I have an abyss with an acid lake at the bottom. You have an abyss with an acid lake at the bottom. Our professional, wonderful friend with the body that makes diet authors go bananas has an abyss with an acid lake at the bottom of it. And the person listening to this has an abyss with an acid lake at the bottom, this cavern with all the ways that their body does not conform with the world's expectations of it. And the point of this episode in particular is to say that acid lake was put there on purpose by the Bikini Industrial Complex, which is a group of businesses who have lobbied the government to make it official to say that acid lake belongs in the abyss of every person, especially women. Yes. <laughs> That's this episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. Sorry. Yeah. <sighs> Welcome to it. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, we're online at FSP 2020 on the social medias. 
You can email us at thefeministsurvivalproject2020 at gmail.com. Please don't argue with us about health at every size until you've actually read the whole book. Yes, read the book. You have to read it. Then you can argue don't, with us about it. Don't Google but it. don't. Don't Google it because there's a lot of like, health at every size is bullshit online that's made of industrial Read complex. the book. Bullshit. Read the book. If there's, if you just read the book. You have to, you have to actually read the book. The whole thing. And then you're allowed to have an opinion about the book. Right. Yes. Until you have read it, you're not allowed to express an opinion in public. Is that fair? That's completely fair. Great. Okay, then. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>great how did you do it and i looked up from the floor with my bowl of food i couldn't taste and said stress and depression the feminist survival project 2020 is a part of the frolic podcast network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts